Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. Tonight's episode is something that uh, a lot of our fans uh, anticipate every year. We've been doing it for 14 years now, right? Wow. Yeah. 13, yes. 14, Yikes. 13. We started with the summer of 1983. On this episode, we'll be reviewing the films released during the summer season of 1996. So that's <laughs> a lot of years we've packed in there. And we've seen a, a significant change you know, how Hollywood and movies have evolved in, in that period of time. We've kind of traced it in this annual show. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one thing, there's so many more releases each subsequent year. That's true. Uh, you know, and you can argue the merits of the, the quality of those releases, but, uh, you know, you get mm-hmm. more of more of anything, there's going to be, uh, you know, more bad, maybe more good. We'll see. Oh, yes. oh, God, what am I doing? Always a surprise. So <laughs> this is what this is the most important part of the intro. So as usual, me and uh, me, I'm Jamie and, and, and Adam is here as usual. Hello, hello. And we are joined once again, as we are every year on this special by Arenada Diaz, our great friend, writer, film historian, critic, fill in the blank. Hello. <laughs> hello. Hey, bud. His right. reputation precedes him. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, uh, it, it, it's something you mentioned. Yes, uh, there are more releases as the years have gone on, and uh, I still, uh, I, I submit, uh, we're still in a in a good period of where the summer is a, uh, at least this summer in particular is a very good summer. And we're getting, and it's a. In fact, this year, this 1996, was a particularly strong year overall. And so this was a good year, good, good year overall. This is a good strong summer overall. So this is a, this is more quality than inanity, uh, I would say. So. All right, let's put that, let's put that observation to the test. (laughs) (laughs) The first movie out of the gate uh, supports your hypothesis, Aaron. If if I'm looking at the right list, because it says here May first, I shot Andy Warhol. Yes. Perfect summer movie, uh, really. Well, uh, 1996 was a was an embarrassment of riches in the American independent cinema, uh, from you know January 1st to December 31st, and uh, this was one of the highlights. I shot I shot Andy Warhol, but Mary Harum, she would go on. Four years later, to do the uh, terrific American Psycho, and I shot Andy Warhol was uh, one of those uh, was her calling card movie. Uh, she done a lot of, I believe, music videos, and this was kind of the um, culmination of 
almost a decade worth of performances in in indie films and some studio films by by Lily Taylor, who any critic worth their salt said that she was one of the finest actors actresses of that era, and this was kind of the career performance. It's a great film. Uh, she's great in it. It's based on this kind of obscure footnote in pop culture history when uh, this this kind of uh, woman, this this kind of bag woman, uh, Valerie Solanas, uh, who was uh, homeless and probably and obviously probably schizophrenic, but was also a kind of a, this uh, prophetic genius in the Shirokas Manifesto, the Chicago Manifesto, Society for Cutting Up Men, uh, which is rambling and, and but uh, just kind of killing in its uh, articulate, articulation of of a, of a point of view, of a feminist rage point of view, and uh, she went to Andy Warhol. Uh, she hung out at the factory, and she she wanted him to publish it, and uh, he humored her, and but didn't take her seriously. And uh, after a while, she grew enraged, and she uh, she uh, she uh, shot him, and uh, I believe three four times. And uh, so yeah, uh, Stephen Dorff, believe, uh, no, Stephen, Stephen Dorff played Candy Darling, and Jared Harris. In a great performance, great performance, uh, played uh, Andy Warhol in a very cold, detached manner, unlike another Warhol portrayal we will see later in the summer, uh, at a later period in Warhol's life. We'll get to that later. Uh, but yeah, I shared in Warhol, which made my top ten list that year. Probably one of the, and also uh, one of the best uh, depictions, uh, accurate depictions of the 60s, which, which is to say, it didn't uh, rely on, you know, hippies and protest signs and marches and, you know, Buffalo Springfield on the soundtrack, kind of those signifiers that kind of became kind of cliche of 60s. This was more accurate. Uh, this was more realistic and more clear-eyed. I don't believe it. I, I just, I've never seen it. I shot Andy Warhol. I don't know how I missed it because I like Mary Heron. Of like for the most part her other movies, but uh, and I think the last one she did that Charlie says is the best Manson related narrative that I've ever seen. Actually, mm-hmm. that was a really good movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a blind spot for me too. I hate to say that. Uh, I had I remember clearly when it was released, and uh, I was a projectionist during this summer movie going season, so I remember all of these releases pretty well. And uh, but that was one that our theater did not get. Um, and we, we were, we only had four screens in the theater in which I was working that summer. So, uh, we were kind of limited and uh, it just kind of came and went and I never caught up to it after it was, uh, gone from theaters. So I'll tell you what I did see two days later, barbed wire. (laughs) Ah, yes. Don't call me babe. Publicity, the PR machine around that of Pamela Anderson Lee at the time she was married to Tommy Lee, and they're yes. like this was going to be her big major uh, film debut and this kind of conscious attempt to make a cult classic, kind of this trash classic, and um, I believe the plot borrows heavily from Casablanca. Of, of I think it does. Correctly. Yes. Yeah, she plays Bogey, and um, you know, problem is 
you know, a lot of films. This is, and this is, like, and, and this is not a, and I do not, this is not just barbed wire's problem. Barb, you know, barbed wire shouldn't get any kind of special sing, signaling out of this. Uh, but, uh, it's always never good to try to be a self-conscious example of anything, be it a trash, you know, cult film, be it, you know, a lot of the neo-noirs that we got in the, in the mid nineties that, you know, they, they were consciously trying to be like the forties movies, uh, you know, and, and so forth. So whenever, whenever you're, whenever you're trying to purposely be like the classics, instead of just being your own thing, uh, you're just gonna. You're probably not gonna be that successful. What I do remember is uh, my the only my only memory is uh, Pamela Anderson Lee on the uh, syndicated radio show Rockwave, Rockline, uh, hyping the uh, the the uh, metal industrial industrial metal soundtrack. Uh, They're really also hyping that was tied into that movie. So there, and it must be said that that the all that PR for that movie, MTV, everything. It didn't really work. That movie just pretty much was DOA from opening weekend. Like no one went. Like, so no DOA I was in '88. We covered that four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Do we want to say anything about captives? The only thing I know about captives is, is I constantly see that soundtrack when I'm shopping for vinyl. That's all I know about it. Good movie. Uh, uh, Tim Roth, and at the time. Because uh, this was the movie released like only five months after Sabrina, Julie Ormond, uh, was a total 180 for her, and uh, it actually has a lot in common with the movie Damage from like four years earlier with Jeremy Irons, Philip Benoche, and she plays a a dentist who volunteers at the prison, and she becomes uh, involved with Tim Roth who who's in prison and he uh, he's her, he is her patient at, at uh, starts off that way, but she becomes very emotionally attacked. She comes back to the prison in a, in a disguise. She's not supposed to visit, obviously, the inmates, and they constantly uh, raise the stakes and develop this uh, this very sexually obsessive relationship. Uh, her husband has cheated on her, and she's filled with a lot of uh, rage about that. And there's some other surprises. And it's a very uh, it's a very intense emotional uh, character piece with these two performances. And you know, Julie Armand's interesting. You know, she like the Fall and Sabrina and this film. And I don't know if people remember when when Sabrina came out, she got that whole um, New York Times magazine, you know, cover story treatment. You know, she was going to be the next Audrey Hepburn, and you know, her, everyone was praising her talent and. And there was no denying her talent. She, she's truly a terrific actress. And, uh, you know, for some reason, Sabrina did not... You know, Sabrina had all the ingredients to hit, uh, and it didn't, it didn't connect, and then sub- subsequent films have not connect, connected, and uh, that's unfortunate because uh, it doesn't mean she's any less talented. And Captive is something I, I, I do recommend. It's a really good character piece. Yeah, she's a good actress. We had her on the show. I've always liked yeah. her... And she's done some, she's done some daring stuff. I really like that uh, dramatic Vince Vaughn, where they played cold callers, salesmen, and Julia right, Armand right, right. was in that. Which one was that? that? Is that the prime gig? I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in yeah. Surveillance, she turned pretty dark. The Jennifer Lynch movie with Bill Pullman. Yeah, so she's very good. No, uh, so it's a good movie. If y'all haven't, you know, rent this. You know, I shot it in the wall and, and captured. That's a good, believe me, that's a good intense double feature. Wow, that sounds like a great fun. The Craft also opened on that day. This is one of these movies like, uh, like your Hocus Pocuses. <laughs> I, I call it the the uh, syndication syndrome, and that's because they were heavy in syndication on right. HBO and VHS. That just because you saw it a million times on on HBO on Saturday uh, doesn't make it any better. And the craft is one of, even though obviously it's a good cast, Perusia Balk and all that. And apparently, I mean, and they made a sequel during the pandemic. Uh, I don't know how many of these diehards saw the sequel or know that a sequel is out there. Die Hard is a different franchise. But yeah. I, I did think it was cool that the sequel was the Craft 2 Die Craftier. That was that was nice. So I mean <laughs> I, I I never I never I never really got into the uh into the uh, the the craft uh it you know it was coming a year after uh, something that's smart like clueless, you know, which was smart about you know, which had uh teenage uh girls at its center but was smart about them and they're you know they're they're comings and goings but right. uh craft was just kind of lame anything on this adam like i said we did this was one that we did have in the theater where in which i worked and uh i know that uh people of a certain age really flocked to it and really seemed to enjoy it and the reviews were i think generally favorable i know leonard malton liked it fairly well and i don't think siskel Niebuhr liked it i think they gave it a negative but uh Nevertheless, I just wasn't a big fan of it. I didn't connect with it. It's pretty generic stuff for me, and so I saw it once and never thought twice about it again. So the Great White mm-hmm. Hype. Uh, it was the uh, Samuel Jackson, Jeff Goldblum, and wasn't it uh, the boxing thing? Yeah, this, I actually like this film. It's a boxing satire. Uh, it's not perfect. Um, and that the perfect cat, is the eighty-five. Right. I'm gonna keep doing and this. It, the, the cast is pretty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get old real quick. The cast is pretty. Uh, the cast is pretty stellar. I mean, we got a lot of before they were stars kind of thing here. I mean, Peter Berg played the white boxer. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, two years before he becomes a director, and uh, he's a lot of fun in it. Uh, Jamie Foxx is in the movie. Uh, people probably don't know that, but I don't remember that. Jamie Foxx is in it. Uh, Damon Wayans does a great uh, Mike Tyson impersonation in the movie. And like I said, Goldblum, Sam Jackson. Uh, so it's, it's just this kind of, it has a, it has a, a little bit of a Michael Ritchie vibe to it, mm-hmm. uh, satirizing the, the boxing world. So if it was like, between you know, this or Play It to the Bone, where, where would you fall, Aaron? This is definitely better. Definitely better than Play to the Bone, actually. Uh, it doesn't have um, it doesn't have an ending. It just kind of stops. But before it gets to its rather drab ending, there's some big laughs in there. Tyson is hilarious, and and the fight scene. That, and that's the other thing. Uh, it doesn't joke around with the fight scenes. The fight scenes are good. They're brutal. They're intense. And so uh, it's a real interesting mix of like rather brutal violence and this very cutting uh, racial humor yep. in the boxing world. So like I said, it's very Michael Ritchie style. Uh, 
Last Dance. This is Sharon Stone, Death Row, Bruce Beresford. And what's the guy, Rob Morrow? He's he's the kind of the, who is he? He's trying to get her out of Death Row, the attorney? He's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. Uh, and uh, the problem with this film is that it's literally coming five months after Dead Man Walking. And right. I'm sure Dead Man Walking is still in some theaters somewhere when this movie comes out. And it's just, there's no contest. She actually gives a, a good performance. But it just—it's just—it's just unfortunate when it comes out five yeah, months after Dead Man. I remember that feeling uh, that it was trounced by Dead Man, and I thought their choice of uh, playing that Donna Summer song when she's executed was totally off base. I have been directed at 12:01 a.m. by the superintendent of prisons to cause the sentence of death to be executed on Cindy Leanne Liggett by intravenous injection of a substance or substances in a lethal quantity sufficient to cause the death of said Cindy Lee Ann Liggett and until the said Cindy Lee Ann Liggett is dead. So let's dance. I don't know if it's that habeas corpus movie within a movie in the player. Um, I don't know if y'all remember, right. y'all remember the player. The Julie Roberts Bruce and, Willis thing. Yeah, and how that's kind of a running gag throughout this whole. You know, wants to be this trenchant, fearless film about the death penalty, and then it becomes this commercial uplifting thing by the end. I mean, that's kind of what Last Dance Last Dance plays like an amalgamation of like that. That film. Uh, I should skip over this one, but I'll ask you. Uh, the the Paul Bear, that's the David Schwimmer romantic comedy when, you know, I, every, every sitcom it. star I, gets a chance at bat to make it in the movies, and this was his. Yeah, he, uh, well, 96 was kind of the breakout year for a lot of them because, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, Matt LeBlanc had Ed earlier in the year. He has Paul Bear and, uh, and then Nev Campbell has the hit at the end of the year with Scream. Uh, I really, I actually held theaters. I hated this movie. It was one of these indie rom-coms uh, written and directed by Matt Reeves. And really? if, you, if you told me, if you told me then, like when I came out of the theater, hey, you know, in a few years, this Matt Reeves guy, he's going to be a real major talent, and you're really going to be surprised how good he is. I, I wouldn't have believed you uh, because. When he finally does his second movie, years and years later, he does the American remake of Let the Right One End, another overrated foreign vampire movie. But he does the American <laughs> remake, which is just terrific. I liked them uh, both, but he did Cloverfield before that, right? Yeah, which is fine. But Let Him In is uh, is uh, just one of those rare cases where the remake is better than the original. And uh, I was like, wow, I, didn't, I, I would not have guessed that he had that in him. Um, so yeah, Paul Bearer. The only thing that Paul Bearer is a footnote on is that it's the early indication that Gwyneth Paltrow uh, is going to be a star because she's the uh, the romantic lead, and she just is very luminescent, lights up the screen, even though it's just and uh, yeah. like like barbed wire, which is a 
unofficial remake of Casablanca, Paul Bearer is an unofficial remake of The Graduate. <laughs> That's just such a funny phrase. <laughs> yeah. Barbed wire, an unofficial remake of Casablanca. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Winona Ryder, and I think who's the, who's the guy? Ethan <laughs> Luke, Lucas Hawes in a movie called Boys, yeah, May 10th. I don't know. I don't know how this movie got made or why it got made, and I don't even know why Winona Ryder is in this movie. At this point, I mean, she's coming off of Age of Innocence, Reality Bites, and Little Women, which is you know just an amazing range in her um, in her acting, and she does this kind of gooey, soft uh, adolescent you know, one night in a boys dormitory kind of romance film and it's just it's yeah. just awful. It's a season of Skeet Ulrich. I think it's important to make note of. He's in this one and another yeah. one during the summer. Yeah. Uh the summer of Skeet. Uh yes. Cold Comfort Farm, Adam. Cold Comfort Farm. This is this is the uh John Schlesinger movie. Okay, did you see Cold Comfort Farm? <laughs> Uh, about 25 years ago. <laughs> it, except Kate Beckinsale, I remember her being uh, part of the cast, and it was one of her first uh, American that, movies. Right? You know, I remember it. You know, being you know uh, typical of its type, British comedy. The, the interesting thing about Coco Farm was that uh, it was a it was a total comeback for Schlesinger, who started off the year 1996 with probably his worst film, which was Eye for an Eye. Um, and that movie is just awful. And then he comes out with this, which is one of his best films. And it's a British, I mean, it's set on a farm, but it's not, it's a British comedy of man. It's, uh, Kate Beckinsale is her first major film, and, uh, she comes to this farm. She's like a bad reputation. But she tries to make the best of it, and it's just kind of this, kind of this quirky comedy of, of, uh, manners. And, um, uh, she's just really charming, and everyone's, and, uh, you, you kind of wonder, you know, where's this Kate Beckinsale? You know, she's got all the action movies and so forth. You know, but every once in a while, this Kate Beckinsale shows up, you know, last day the disco and the aviator. And uh, she's just so funny and the comedy is so wry. And uh, and uh, just, it's, it's really one of those, it's one of those body kind of uh, British comedies like, like uh, Tom Jones. Uh, so it's, it's really, really good. Next is Dead Man, the Jim Jarmusch movie starring Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, but uh, grossed to just over a million dollars. Yeah, one of those. I mean, you know, Jarmusch has that cult following, uh, you know, that he always has with any of his movies. This one has a real cult following. I think it's part of the Criterion Collection now. Um, it's not one of my favorite Jarmuches. Doesn't really have a point. Johnny Depp's actually pretty good in it. So is Gary Farmer as his uh, Indian. American Indian, American uh, Indian partner, a Native American partner, uh, Robert Mitchum. I think it's his last film appearance in it. Um, looks great, shot in black and white. I don't don't know what the point of it really is. It's just kind of one of Jarmusch's kind of you know weird essay movies. It doesn't have the the momentum of a Ghost Dog or Stranger in Paradise or mystery train yeah uh original gangsters also opened on may 10th 
Fred, yeah, it's a, uh, Fred Williamson and Jim Brown, Pam Greer. Yeah, this is one of those. Well, that, you know, this is it, it is interesting only in the, in the fact that this comes a year and a half before Jackie Brown, and so Fred Williamson, you know, he got it, he got all the finances himself, and he he got the gang back together, all the all the big lights, yeah. all the leading lights from that era to come up with this uh, this this film. I mean, and so if you're a fan of that genre, you kind of you did enjoy seeing them all back together, you know, twenty some odd years later, in a, uh, you know, played straight, you know, update of that genre. So it has it has that charm going for it. Uh, it's not great, obviously. It's not a Jackie Brown, and it's it's not as uh, it's not as it doesn't have the ferocious energy of those early films like Coffee and Sweet Sweetback, but yeah. it, it has its charms. Uh, also on that day, one of the biggest hits of the year, and that is Twister, a movie uh, I like still. A lot of these summer blockbuster hits are um, ridiculous in places, but um, I think Twister still works as pure entertainment, and this film score I love. I think it's one of the best action film scores of this uh, genre and time, Mark Mancino. Yeah. Uh, because there's a great sense of, you know, because they're out in the plains for most of it, and there's a great sense of Amer- Americana in the score, uh, and also, you know, thrilling adventure. I think that uh, Bill Paxton uh, pulls on a full Shatner in this performance. Like, if you if you really watch his performance in this movie, I love Bill Paxton, but uh, a lot of his delivery is very Shatner-esque. Yeah, so I I still I still like Twister a lot. I remember when it opened, Twister was the big deal because it was the new Sony sound getup, and man, we had so many complaints. Like you could time it, everybody running out. It's blasting, my ears are bleeding, and you know we dealt with that constantly. Yeah, uh, I remember Twister. I went opening weekend, and uh, you know, you know, it's funny. You know, critics, some critics, you know, probably there were critics who did get it. And they did appreciate it. And then there are those who kind of complained about the quote-unquote plot. Uh, but, you know, there there is this thing about summer movies. They are designed to be a ride. You know, you go see Top Gun, you know, because it has these six unforgettable, uh, jaw-dropping, aerial dogfight sequences that, you know, you want to see in the big screen. Yeah. You know, you go to... Uh, uh, you know, same thing with you know, same thing with Twister. You know, it it has a half dozen of these storm sequences, and one's just up in the the ante, you know, on the on the next one, and um and all you need is very very simple but strong character development and a very very you know to draw the audience from beginning to end. And Bill Paxton, uh, you know, what what makes the Bill Paxton performance work is that. He's an actor who, you know, it's that old, it's a very old adage, you know, if he believes it, we'll believe it. And so he believes, you know, what he's doing, and, and he doesn't, he never, um, he never talks down to the movie, you know, that he's in, oh, well, I'm in the summer movie, you know, you know, but I've, I've done better things. No, 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 he's in it for the ride. And so because of that, you know, because he's having fun, we'll have fun with him. And so those storm sequences are just great to to experience. And yes, it was you know it was the first DTS. I remember the DTS 
like a little promo. It was different than the than the TAKX promo. And uh yeah, I mean it just you know you didn't you hadn't heard anything uh like that. And then uh this is one of those um the footnote for some people on this film this was the first time we were truly made aware. We didn't know his name yet. He hadn't become an icon yeah. of acting, but it was a love it or hate it performance by one Philip Seymour Hoffman as the uh, party animal dude on the uh, storm chasing team. Yeah, and, which is uh, interesting because the, he, the performance he gave in Sin of a Woman was also a love it or hate it kind of performance. And when mm-hmm. I saw yeah. when I saw him in Sin of a Woman, I was like, I don't know if I. I don't know if I if I don't like him or if, or you know it's just the annoyance of that character that he got perfect, and I've come to realize it's the latter. But it was confusing at first. <laughs> but, in, but, in, but in Twister, it's just as Rusty. He just uh, he sticks to this one note on this character who yeah. he just loves chasing storms and just thinks it's the most fun thing you'll ever. Do he loves it for the you know for the you know for the for the for the jolt of energy. It's like how and, Spicoli uh, feels about surfing. So, yes, uh, uh, Adam, what do you, uh, you still appreciate Twister? I appreciate it for what it is. I mean, it's not the kind of movie that uh, that I can watch very often. I have to let long gaps go in between seeing it. Um, you know, it's it was it was one of those movies when I saw I saw it when it came out and I felt like it was entertaining enough. But uh, my opinion was, well, uh, that once is enough for a while. And, and over the years, I've maybe seen it twice since then. And uh, but you know, it's um, you have to take it in small amounts. I, think, I, I remember think when, I, but when it, I I got yeah. my first DVD player and I hooked it up to a sound system, and the first mm-hmm. thing I bought was Twister. Uh, because you know what? What better thing to blow out the apartment building with than <laughs> the yeah. Twister? It's it's and a great to, demo piece. I yeah. mean, it really is. Yeah. I guess to uh, illustrate my my point here that you know Paxton doesn't talk down to the movie, and so we we will follow him. You know, uh, in the in the movie's one big dramatic sequence where they have him and Helen Hunt have this argument in the rain, and uh, right. he has to give an emotional speech. Uh, she's not very good in her part because she does not fully commit. To that, she's in a summer action movie. So totally agree. Her, yep. When she gives her, you know, you've never seen it. Miss this house and miss that house and come after you. It's it's just cringe-inducing. That's the mm-hmm. one scene where I think Paxton is at his most Shatner-esque. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wanted to see him run off with Jamie Gertz, but that's just me. I mean, yeah, uh, I, uh, if you can accept that you're you're in a ridiculous melodrama in the middle of this made up storm with flying cows then that's your yes. job as an actor to do yes i do my my favorite visual gag that yandabon does is uh at that drive-in and uh he really gets a real sense of forward motion motion and uh when he has the the shot of the shining and he right. has it uh of a nicholson with the axe yeah there's great set pieces in that but to, to but to, but to contrast what you just said I think it, it, it commitment is important, certainly, in it, for any performance. But it's also a knowledge of what kind of movie you're in. So right. another another example of that is in the middle of the Expendables, Mickey Rourke has the scene 
and it's like he's doing King Lear or something. And yeah. and you're like, what movie am I watching? <laughs> it's like completely yeah. out outside the, you know, he's he's coloring outside the lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also on that day, here's some counter programming. The last release on that day. Welcome to the Dollhouse. Uh, well, let me Solon. take this one because yes, I love Todd Salons. We all know that. And so I uh, I will say that uh, he is an acquired taste. He's not for everyone, but this was the movie that put him on the map after his 1989 debut, Fear, Anxiety, and Depression, went nowhere. And so he did this, uh, you know, it took him about, what was this, uh, you know, I guess seven years later. And he, this caught on. Uh, it was a huge Sundance um, you know, success, and it paved the way for his career, which is, uh, uh, sadly, he's not made a film in five years, and I don't know if he's going to make any more, which is terrible, because his last film was in my top ten for the entire year, Wiener Dog. Uh, you know, his films are basically about mis- uh, social misfits, and this one is a good example. Uh, you know, it's about the hills of high school, or junior high school, I guess you could say. And uh, centers around the character of the uh, Dawn Wiener, known as Wiener Dog in the film, and her uh, <laughs> attempts to uh, fit in. And she doesn't fit in at school nor at home because all the attention is paid to her siblings as opposed to her. And so it's just a miserable existence. And this has become the staple for the Todd Salons films. Uh, they're always feel bad films, but you either get on their wavelength or you don't. Uh, of course, a couple of years later, he did Happiness, which was a big. Uh, controversial film, but uh, that's jumping ahead of the game. But Welcome to the Dollhouse, I think, was um, uh, I saw it um, in our local indie theater and just was blown away. And I said, this is this is a guy that I get and I appreciate his worldview. And so I followed him with great uh, diligence over the years. Yeah, uh, I, I was I was a huge Todd Solon, Solon fan in that. Uh, he has, he has two, uh, modes and the, the four movie run starting with this film, Welcome to the Dollhouse, which also made my top ten list, which is a great film, one of the, probably the best film about the pangs and anxiety, pains and anxieties of being, uh, you know, 11, 12 years old in middle school. Um, just amazing. That four movie run of, uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse, Happiness, which was my favorite film of 1998, uh, Storytelling, Mm-hmm. A great kind of essay film, and then capping it off with palindromes in 2005. And mm-hmm. um, what those films have uh, is a real strong sense of narr- narrative. And that's when Solon is at his best, when he does have a narrative. He he has his own worldview. It is kind of feel bad, but you know there's an excitement to it. And uh, but when he when he gets into it, when he adheres to a narrative structure. Uh, he, he's one of the best, uh, but after that, he got into kind of these sketchy, elliptical kind of essay films, Godardi, and reverted back to his first film, this, the fear, anxiety, depression, which is, uh, not a good movie, and he kind of reverted back to that style where there's no real narrative drive, and it's just kind of these blackout scenes, and, it's kind of gets mean. It's funny. Uh, I like these films, and it's funny. You know, a movie like Happiness. I know a lot of critics who don't like that film because they think he's being very cruel and ironic and and not being very nice. And they like a lot of his later stuff. And to me, it's the opposite. And while there is some cruelty and irony in Happiness, but there is a such a wide breadth of of empathy in those movies. That Dollhouse, Happiness, 
storytelling palindrome. There's so much empathy in his movies that is only intermittent in his later films, like Life During Wartime and, and uh, Wiener Dog and so forth. But yes, Welcome to the Dollhouse still holds up. It's an amazing film. It is. Okay. Totally agree. Uh, the next week, May 16th, here's the indie film that caught on fire. It's uh, Danny Boyle's Train Spotting. Remember mm-hmm. seeing that opening night? Relinquishing junk, stage one, preparation. For this you will need one room which you will not leave, soothing music, tomato soup, ten tins of, mushroom soup, eight tins of, for consumption cold, ice cream, vanilla, one large tub of, magnesia, milk of, one bottle, paracetamol, mouthwash, vitamins, mineral water, Lucas said, pornography, one mattress, one bucket for urine, one for feces, and one for vomitus. Uh, that was number two on my top ten list that year. Um, that was uh, that was like the movie I was waiting for all summer. You know, everyone was waiting for you know Independence Day and so forth. Me, I was waiting for Train Spot, and I bought the soundtrack like a couple of weeks before the movie came out. I was reading all about it. I was so pumped to see that movie, and it met my expectations. Uh, at that movie, and um, it's just I mean, Danny Boyle is a director who you know I. You know, I have a frustrating relationship with because, you know, Shallow Grave and Train Spotting are great. I'm not a Slumdog Millionaire fan, but I love 127 Hours. Uh, and then you get something like Trance, which is just almost unwatchable. Uh, so, you know, I go back and forth to Danny Boyle. Um, but Train Spotting is where it's at. It's probably Ewan McGregor is still probably his best performance. Um, I, I, I really didn't. Care. I only watched part, you know, the op- opening 30 minutes of T2 Train Spotting, the sequel. Um, I thought that was 20 years too late. Uh, that should have been done real quickly after the original. Uh, and it just, it, uh, it came after its moment uh, that it was necessary. Uh, but Train Spotting still holds up beautifully. That is one of the great soundtracks in movie history. That soundtrack is just stupendous and uh it's just one of the great it's it's a real transgressive movie because it's a it's a very honest depiction of drug addiction and what makes it so uh scary and offensive to some is that it's that it really conveys the uh the joy of of both the joy and uh, the horror of drug addiction uh it really gets you on that up that really the high and the low uh, of drug addiction. Um, so, yeah, no, great movie, great, great movie. Could not agree more, and I'm also a fan of the second one. I, I did like it. Uh, it is belated, I will admit that, but uh, I thought it was it was um, about as good of a sequel as you could hope for when you're waiting that long to make one, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but uh, but not nearly as good as the first one. I mean, I don't have to say any more about that but yeah it's a it's a masterpiece you're right and um still holds up yeah flipper (laughs) may 17th man disney went into overdrive on uh the promotion for this uh man we got i think this was universal i think universal put this oh no 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 i'm thinking of the robin williams thing yeah that's right flubber flubber Flubber. yeah 
God, I yeah, always get the... Flipper yeah. and Flubber. I got got them confused. Sorry. Well, let's talk yeah. about Flubber anyway. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they call him yeah, Flipper. So... Paul yeah, Hogan. This was, yeah. This was clearly greenlit in the wake of the hit of the popularity of the Free Willy franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I assume, and uh, I guess the uh, and uh, and Andre also, if we remember correctly, and you know, well, there's this whole spat of these kind of um, these family animal movies: Free Willy, Andre, Lassie, Free Willy Two, uh, Shiloh, which is coming up. You know, some of these are good, some of these are bad. Shiloh, and uh, it's a dog yeah. movie. Michael Moriarty. Yeah. Uh, oh, not not the Holocaust movie. thing. Oh, let's no, show no, up. Show him. Okay. Yeah, show Once him, again, yeah. flubber, flipper. <laughs> You're close. You're in the ballpark. And so this one was, you know, I'm sure greenlit in the wake of that. And uh, it's just not very good. Even though uh has a good, you know, you know, appealing cast, Elijah Wood. Uh, you know, obviously he's a capable young actor at this time. And Paul Hogan is like as likable a presence you can get uh, for this kind of thing. It's just, you know, if they didn't bother to have written something you know, you know, you don't have to write a great script, but if you write something decent, like the first Free Willy, which is a good movie, uh, you might actually have a modest hit. But didn't bother to do that. I think, yeah, I think it was also a, um, a reaction to the television. You know, they were making these TV series into feature-length films, and uh, you know, they were they were mining the vault. So I think it was also a reaction to that. It was a way to cash into that. You know, which we're coming up on one of those. I think it's the next one we're going to talk about. Yeah, which was... he- Heaven's Prisoners, and this was a big Miramax uh, kerfuffle, wasn't it? Because this, yeah, uh, I think it was. Yeah. Now, was it the fact that Miramax was trying to change uh, Phil Joanu's cut or something? Oh, was it, was it one of those where Harvey had his own cut of this? I believe uh, so. I, I did not know that. I mean, I know the movie wasn't good. Uh, anyway, Phil Joanu. You know, he is a very good stylist. Uh, you know, obviously his first film is the YouTube concert film, Rattle and Hum, which is one of the best shot uh, stadium concert films, both in black and white and color. People don't don't give that movie enough credit for the look of that concert film. But then uh, State of Grace, which uh, I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of the movie State of Grace, but I don't deny the the look of a uh, State of Grey has been a very stylish-looking movie, and he's a great stylist. Uh, uh, and uh, I forget, there's a, there's a movie he did later. Well, he did the, the 3D, U2 3D concert movie, I believe. He did Final uh, Analysis with Richard Gere and Kim Basinger. Fi- fi- yep, Final Analysis, yeah. which is another stylish, which is uh, actually a watch, you know. A, it's a watchable a movie. movie. I just watched it again last year. Yeah, yeah it's watchable. It's not a, but, uh, it's uh, not a bad... It's, it's not a bad movie. It's not a great movie. Uh, it, uh, it has it has some surprises. Uh, the women are fun in that movie. Both Uma Thurman and Kim Basinger are good, and of course Eric Roberts chewing up the scenery. Uh, Gear as a psychiatrist, a little hard to believe, hard to buy. Uh, even though he's pretty, he's a good actor. Uh, but yeah, so then he does this film, and uh, I mean it's Alec Baldwin, Terry Hatcher, Mary Stuart Masterson, uh, Eric Roberts once again. Uh, and uh, Kelly Link, and it's just one of these Bayou noirs, like, but you know, it doesn't have the, it doesn't have the, you know, even though it looks authentic, uh, it doesn't have the feel of something like The Big Easy or even something like No Mercy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there you go. Yeah, man, Richard Gere in the Bayou. 
that, that was a that was a trend for a while. <laughs> uh, the next day, obviously another one of the great big fat hits of the year, Mission Impossible. I was so eagerly anticipating this, only because I thought De Palma was an ideal fit for that franchise. We obviously got the set pieces that the De Palma fanatics uh, look forward to mm-hmm. in Mission Impossible. And in spite of all the impressive set pieces throughout the series, a lot of people always come back to the one of the least death-defying, only because of the brilliance of staging when he's trying to steal the disc and he's ha- he's hanging by the wires and the beads of sweat that might fall on the floor and cause the alarm to go off. I mean, just the, it's a, it it seems very uh, simple and almost non heroic, and yet uh, the it's it's more suspenseful or as suspenseful as anything in that entire series. I think. I would agree. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's funny to watch this movie. Uh, you know, obviously twenty five years ago in relation to, obviously, where the series has evolved to, because clearly it has evolved into something totally different. Um, so it's funny to watch the origin story of the series. How And, you know, it's funny in that, uh, you know, back in 96, this was obviously one of the tentpole movies, big budget, big star, you know, and the trailer was hyping the, just these massive set pieces and, even the soundtrack, you know, they're the top ten hit out of the, you know, uh, I believe it was uh, Larry Mullen and Adam Clayton from YouTube That's right. doing the doing the the new version of this. I mean, it got in the top ten, you know, so it had all this hype, you know. But now we look at it, it's very uh, modest compared to uh, Ghost Protocol and Fallout. You know, mm-hmm. there. Uh, but and uh, and you talk about a sequence to break into Langley sequence, which is obviously De Palma, you know, just like the. Uh, the uh, Grand Central Station sequence in The Untouchables is a riff on Battleship Potemkin. This sequence is, is a riff on um, Jules Dassin's uh, Rafifi. I don't know if people yeah. remember this, Rafifi, uh, which had a, a similar silent break-in where they're dealing with block, you know, falling pieces of concrete and not trying to make any noise. And that's what the Palm is riffing on here. Not that, not that the... Uh, 20-somethings who were flocking to this to the Tom Cruise movie knew anything about <laughs> Rafifi. Uh, but yeah. That's so one, of that the great, for, one of the great heist movies. Uh, yes, uh, yeah. And uh, this was uh, John Voight at his peak in his uh, <laughs> career revival as a... Uh, oh, okay. As, uh, this isn't John Voight uh, at his career peak. That's not what you're saying. I uh, mean... No, no, but as his, you know, in that career revival that began with uh, uh, Heat... Right. You know, uh, you know, he was, you know, going in full tilt, uh, start for about, you know, he had a good, uh, I'd say a good five, six year well, run. National treasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, 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 he remained in the game. But yeah, Mission Impossible, uh, I mean, it's fun. And, uh, I mean, it keeps Ving Rhames employed between this and Arby's. Uh, so I, on, I, dude. I, still he didn't like start it, to do right? Arby's until much later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, it would be funny if that catchphrase came from Mission Impossible, though. We have the meats. If he just said that once yeah. at Mission Impossible, <laughs> they're gonna go back and put that in there. What uh, what I find what I find interesting now, watch, having rewatched Mission Impossible recently, uh, is that I remember vividly back at the, back when it first came out, 
all the chatter was about how convoluted uh, yes. the plot was and how no one could could uh, follow it. Now, when you see it, uh, I, you know, I probably you know, it's, 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 while it's still convoluted, it's nothing compared to the plots we get today. Be it either in limited miniseries, you know, be it on a season of 24 or, you know, other, even later Mission Impossible. The plot for Mission Impossible, the first one, is almost classical in its, uh, you know, uh, double crosses. So that's kind of interesting. I remember the big controversy, the only controversy really was the, uh, that, that he wanted to kill off the entire cast of the, <laughs> the TV show in the first five minutes. <laughs> does, does anyone, does anyone remember, uh, Martin Landau on the red carpet? on MTV. Uh-uh. Can you remember this? So MTV was doing the, uh, you know, one of those movie red carpet specials. And, um, you know, so they're interviewing all the people coming up to the red carpet. And of course, uh, remember, and here's a real kind of blast from the past. Kennedy was the correspondent. And so she's interviewing the stars. And so Martin Landau comes over and she's like, Martin Landau, you're in the movie. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm all excited. And, uh, so, and, Somehow she got onto the so and so you know how do you feel about this movie and uh, your relationship to it and Martin Landau he's like well I was in the original series so you know I, you know yeah uh, I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to be in the movie but yeah I was in the original she's like oh I didn't know that he goes but I played and he's like I played the original Kim Phelps she's like oh I did not know that and he's like yeah yeah in the series it, it was a TV show before the movie and I played the I played what John Boyd plays. Like oh wow well that's that well I can see why you're here now. <laughs> so he he walks off awkward and so, and so she's starting to come up and so he comes back and he's angry. He's like I don't understand you like you know you know you're doing the premiere red carpet for Mission Impossible shouldn't you at least know some general facts about the show and the movie? I mean what kind of reporter are you? I mean don't you do any research? And she's like I'm, I'm just here to to interview the people who come up. And he's like, well, you're doing a bad job of it. And he walks <laughs> off again. And then she's like, anyways, uh, so this has been where we're here live. And he comes back again. And he's like, another thing, I mean, you're not going to have a long career if this is the the standard that what you go by of not being prepared for it. And finally, she's like, thank you, Martin. And, our, and we will be back. So Martin and- Landau. Yeah, and little did he know that would be the standard for just about all of media these days. So it's <laughs> well, it's like they had a premiere for the remake of The Longest Yard, and somebody was interviewing Burt Reynolds and didn't realize that he starred in the original, or even that there was an original. Yeah, right. And once yeah. Burt Reynolds found that out, he slapped the guy <laughs> across <Yep>. the face. <laughs> Hysterical. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to note this was the final. Uh, success i guess you would say financial success for brian de palma he didn't really have any more that um uh and this was a couple of years after the the debacle of bonfire of the vanity so he needed this hit and it kept him kept him going for a couple more years after that until he basically uh moved yeah. to france and what was it you know, when was casualties of war it was 89 oh it's way back in 89 yeah and then well, the next what, what year did, was bonfire of the vanities okay so, but what did what did Mission Impossible? Because the Untouchables. Carlito's be, way. Okay. No, Carlito's that's ninety three. Well, finish. Let me yeah, finish my question. Yeah. 
the Untouchables begat his ability to do Casualties of War. So the enormous success of Mission Impossible, what did that lead to? Was it another passion project? Well, no, he did. Um, Snake Eyes. I was uh, going to say, yeah, Snake Eyes. Okay. What happened? Moving on. He, uh, Let's go. Uh, May 24th. Spy uh, Hard. Spy Hard. Man, it's interesting how Mission Impossible, the big studio blockbuster spy movie, Mm-hmm. And then two days later, you get the uh, the far- oh, yeah. farcical version. Well, I remember that they uh, they promoted the heck out of this. We we had trailers going all just about all the features we had in the theater at the time. And uh, you know, there was this time. I, I guess it, it you know it started obviously with Airplane in 1980 with Leslie Nielsen, and then um, suddenly they were just casting him in any parody that they had. They just Put Leslie, they just stuck Leslie, Leslie Nielsen in there, and uh, they thought it would be automatically funny because he was in there. I remember Repossessed with Linda Blair was another yeah. one of those, and this was another one of those that just fell completely flat, except for the opening title sequence by Weird Al, which is a, a spot-on parody of the opening sequences from the James Bond films, and it's quite well done. It's quite funny. Yeah, there's and, a lot to parody uh, in it, in the James Bond kind of... Because there's right. so, there's so many mainstays in in each of those films. Mm. Totally agree, and I remember laughing out loud at the uh, at the opening you know credit sequence. It was hysterical, and I said, "Boy, this is going to be great." Well, boy, my hopes were dashed quickly, and it was. I did think it was interesting that they cast Andy Griffith as the villain. That yeah. was pretty pretty <laughs> unique casting. But you know, other than that, there's not really anything to say. It was a it's not a good movie. I hate to say it, but it's just not uh, the arrival. Uh, May 31st. Oh, yes. we've, we've arrived at the arrival. Yes. Charlie Sheen. Uh, is this Charlie Sheen? Yep. This is David last Tui. good movie? Yeah, is this Charlie Sheen's last good movie? Uh, one of them. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, I can't think of anything good that comes after this by Charlie, with Charlie Sheen. I mean, I know he had a cameo in Being John Malkovich, but, you know, this is where he actually has his name above the title. So I think this is Charlie Sheen's last uh, good movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a more, it's a thinking man's science fiction film uh, about aliens and uh, you know, you know, David, David Toohey obviously has a style with his sci-fi. He comes from the, from the X Files school. Um, I've never been a huge X Files file, as it were. Uh, I, I liked it, but I was never an obsessive. But uh, I do give Tui credit for this. This was very. I did go see it in theaters, and I, and I thought it was actually very well done for. Who is Tui? For, uh, what a, the director? David Tui, the director. Yes, okay. writer and director. Yes. So this is an alien it's abduction not, thing, right? It's not so much abduction. As, uh, uh, Charlie Sheen's and uh, some weird things. Are, if I remember correctly, some weird things are happening, and you know, no one wants to wants them to investigate or trying to tell them to back off, but. You know, it involves aliens visiting uh, Earth. It has kind of a, uh, it's, it's kind of a, almost like an indie version of um, Day the Earth Stood Still, almost. But like I said, it's not even, you know, it's not global, but it's, it's more modest. But it has that kind of a, kind of that vibe to it. Okay. Um, it's kind of low key, but uh, it's very, very smart. The special effects, it's not a big budget, but the special effects they do have are exceedingly um, well done. There, there, you know, there's this uh, little genre of kind of these uh, lo-fi indie kind of sci-fi movies. I'm thinking of stuff like uh, Mothman Prophecies and um, 
There's that one where uh, Christian Bale lost all that weight for that time travel movie. Machinist. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, you know. So there, you know, there's this whole genre of their, you know, they want to do, they want to tackle sci-fi, but they don't have the, the budget of an Independence Day. Right. And so they they kind of do a a workaround on that. And Arrival is a good example of that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I just thought that it was odd because Lindsay Cruz is also in the uh, Chris Walken uh, Alien movie. What is that one called? Right, right. I just watched a communion. communion. Okay. Yeah, that's a good movie. It's not a great movie, but it has that, there's some spooky scenes in that movie. Yeah, I think it's it was, it's kind of a fascinating movie because you see Christopher Walken trying to play a normal father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's probably the most sci-fi aspect of the film. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, also on that day, Dragonheart. This is the Dennis Quaid and Sean Connery does the voice of the dragon, or is, am I thinking of something? That's right. Yeah, okay. that's the one. Yes. Directed by and, um, uh, God. Rob Cohen. Rob Cohen. Rob Cohen. Um, this is back when Rob Cohen like was showing real promise as kind of a summer journeyman action filmmaker. He had this film, and then um, he did the really. I mean, I, I still say his best directing is two years later with the Rat Pack. TV movie. That's his best film, and he did the first Fast and Furious movie. Uh, but anyways, yeah, Dragonheart. I, I saw this in theaters. Also, uh, you know, the, you know, the selling point was just how, at the time, how realistic uh, the dragon looked, matched with Sean, matched with this <laughs> Scottish brogue. You're like, right. oh, dragons come from Scotland. <laughs> uh, and um, I haven't seen it since. I remember at the time, and granted, I was like. Uh, 17. Around the time, I thought well, it's actually kind of fun. Uh, I, I would like to see it again, but I, for some reason, mysteriously, this is—I would have thought this would be one of those films they would have like blasted HBO and AMC and TNT with, but uh, it never became one of those perennial reruns like I thought it would be. Yeah. Uh, but not the case. Eddie, the Whoopi Goldberg basketball movie, right? Is yes. this where she and met will- Langella? Uh, probably. I don't know if she met him or they were already. I think they were already dating, and then they were just in this movie. Okay. Yeah, this uh, is filmed in my backyard, actually. Over really? Charlotte, Carolina. Yeah. Is there stuff in the stuff that takes place in the backyard in this movie? Not literally. That the basket? Did you have a basketball hoop I mean, in your backyard? <laughs> <laughs> Not at the time. Char- Charlotte, North Carolina. Long story short, but yeah, it was filmed near me. Let's put it that way. Mm. Uh, I I defend this movie. Um. I have a real soft spot for this uh, this era, uh, well, practically a ten year era uh, that I, of the Whoopi Goldberg reign uh, in films, and uh, I, I just I like Whoopi Goldberg as a as a performer and his personality back in, the, in, in back in the day, and so it's one of those you know you go to a Whoopi movie, uh, you know, she she did make some great movies, Color Purple, Ghost, Long Walk Home. Uh, but, you know, the Whoopi Goldberg vehicles, as they were, uh, you know, they obviously weren't going to be great, but her personality kind of carried them through, much the way Eddie Murphy back in the 80s carried you through kind of most of his kind of, uh, you know, subpar vehicles. So, you know, movies like Jumping Jack Flash, Burglar, Fatal Beauty, Eddie. 96 is actually a big year for Whoopi. is Eddie Bogus, the associate. Uh, so... Yes, I, I have a soft spot for for Eddie. Uh, it's a fun, it's a fun uh, basketball 
comedy fantasy where he becomes the uh, coach of the I believe the New York Knicks. Touchstone. Is it a touchstone? Is it one of those? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, I think he had a contract with. Yeah, Texas. she obviously that, did. Yeah, the, uh, the and, uh, associate was another. And the yeah. Touchstone. I don't know about bogus, but yeah, those two were definitely touchstone. June, uh, June fifth, we have heavy. What do you guys have to say about that? Uh, like I said, it's it's important. It's only important because it is James Mangold's debut film. I'm not crazy about heavy. I think it's a little mannered. Um, it's one of these kind of quiet indie films where, you know, it takes place in a diner. Prue Taylor Vincent, uh, mm-hmm. Prue Taylor Vince is the lead, and he's the, he's heavy. He's a heavy. He's the son oh, okay. of Shelley Winters. He's the son of Shelley Winters who runs the diner, and uh, Debbie Harry is uh, also works there. She's the older waitress and. I forget. Uh, Liv Shelley Tyler Winters. is it. Yeah, she's also heavy. Uh, <laughs> Liv Tyler is the new waitress who, for Taylor Vince, likes and Debbie Harry's jealous because she used to be the popular one at the diner, but now everyone likes Liv Tyler. But it's one of these movies where the characters, they kind of just give each other glances and they talk in two words. Yeah speeches and uh that stuff really grates on my nerves kind of like you know 10 years ago we'd call this movie tender mercies uh you know where they don't say anything and then when they say something and it's something like revelatory and you're like what that didn't what that's happening but i i I didn't i didn't there's nothing indicating that that was happening so it's one of those movies see i um, see i uh I know what this movie is now. I, 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 at first, I was thinking of Fat Girl, which is a movie I do like. But I don't know that I've seen Heavy. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yes, I was I was not a big fan of it. I mean, performances are fine. I just, I, I just don't like this type of film. Uh, but there, and what's interesting, there's nothing in Heavy that would that prepares you for the following, the following summer when we get Copland, right. which, which is a movie I love. Uh, but yeah, so that's a pretty and, heavy you know, movie. Man, yeah, <laughs> alone. And, and 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 Mangold has now, and I, I must say that Mangold is now one of my favorite uh, filmmakers, mainstream studio filmmakers with Logan and definitely Ford v Ferrari. That's uh, great. Three Ten to Yuma. So yeah, he's become a great filmmaker. By the way, yeah, but, by the way, here on my Skype, I have numbers saved. All it would take is for me to push one button. And I could call a number of people that I've interviewed. And that includes Fedin Papa Michael, the cinematographer who is now shooting the new Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah. See, so you want an that update is. about it? You want an update about Indiana Jones? We could Skype him in right now. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be delighted. Yannish isn't uh, filming it? No, no. Mangold, Papa Michael is his guy. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's right. Uh, but yeah, so that's heavy. Okay. June 7th. We got two movies. One wannabe big one, and one that was actually big. The Phantom. The Phantom. Billy Zane and, and Treat Williams as the villain. Obviously, this is part of that, those early rumblings of what we have now, what we now uh, call comic book superhero culture. And here's one of those early uh, rumblings. And they're trying... and. I give them point they're trying something different 
they're trying not to be, you know, Tim Burton's Batman uh, in that vein. They're actually trying to be kind of light and, and be period. You know, it took, it took place in the 30s. Mm-hmm. They didn't update it. So they're trying to be actually period and be more kind of Indiana Jones and be kind of light and um, and uh, fun and and almost curious about it. And uh, that I give it a plus for. It has almost a, a romance in the stone kind of feel for its, uh, its kind of uh, lightness. Um, but uh, and I, and uh, I love Billy Zane. I love Billy Zane. Ugh. He's a great, he's one of the great scenery queuing actors of all time. And because of that, um, he, he, he's just not conducive to being the, the light hero in a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not his thing. He, he's a villain. He's a great villain. Titanic and so forth. Dead calm. And so, yeah, this was, a, and you know, this comes two years after another, they tried this again two years earlier with The Shadow. Remember Alec Baldwin? Mm-hmm. The, Shadow, mm-hmm. the Shadow News or... Uh, the, the, what, uh, what, the, the one great thing about the Phantom was actually the production design had great production design, but um, right, just wasn't you know just wasn't what people wanted at the time. This I'm was sure a, this was read- another stop on the attempted uh, rehabilitation of Robert Evans' career, right? Yep, it was yeah. right. Oh, was, I'm sure uh, if they were to reboot this again and try it again, I'm sure they could you know get some that Robert Evans should produce again. Off. Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> this would, this would get He really is a fan. <laughs> they were to get this in the DC or the Marvel universe, they could they could make some money off this now. Okay. Also on that day, June seventh, the kick-ass Michael Bay <laughs> summer popcorn yes. flick, The Rock. Don't 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 don't. There, there's my performance of the score yes <laughs> that's actually bad boys that was the bad boys score there. no it's not oh no that's speed right that's speed no speed is that's speed and the rock is uh i can't do it again i, I can't i just did speed I, I can't remember the rock now I, rem- I i i freely admit there was a moment there was an early time there 95 96 with the first bad boys and the rock where i thought michael bay uh, showed real promise, real talent as a kinetic action filmmaker. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, it was a new style. It was overloaded. It was, but it was shiny and it was glossy, but it was, uh, pretty. It was well done and it was a new way of doing, uh, you know, tired genre. I mean, we'd seen cop buddy movies for 15 years up until Bad Boys and we'd seen this, uh, diehard, you know, hostages in a place and got to break in to save the hostages. We've seen that for about eight years now. Uh, so how do you do it differently? And Michael Bay really, you know, showed some real kinetic energy in doing that. But then, uh, you know, I, I guess he did a whole kilo of blow uh, by the time he got to Armageddon and um, and the Transformers movies. And he, he, he has done nothing interesting as a filmmaker since 1996 uh but you know these these two movies uh the first bad boys and the rock they they show different and the thing about the rock what's interesting and i guess uh, it's more interesting uh, with the screenplay uh and i think uh, i can't remember who was one of the script doctors i can't remember if it was apatow or sorkin 
did like a did like one of the drafts or Joss Whedon, but anyway, one of the one of those big guys at the time. Um, there are uh, bits of humanity in the corner, particularly obviously with Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery, but also in the the minor roles. Ed Harris actually has some. He brings some. Oh, humanity it's impeccably his, cast. I mean, that's a sledgehammer yeah. cast. Sure. You know, yeah. Michael 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 Bean and William Forsythe and John Spencer, and so you get all these. Uh, so, so you know, unlike his later movies, which have no humanity, these actors are able to, like, you know, amongst the chaos and the fury to, like, you know, create some characters that like, you can connect to. And this goes back to what you're saying at the beginning. I love Ed Harris, but I don't think he knew the movie he was in. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he's playing it like he's doing, like, the great Santini or something. And you're like, dude, this is like yeah. a... This is just an opportunity to blow up shit between Nick Cage or Wisecracks. That's what this is. Who is this? Identify yourself. White House Chief of Staff, Sinclair. How old are you, Chief of Staff Sinclair? I'm 33. Well, you obviously don't have any fucking idea what I'm talking about. By your ninth birthday, I was running black ops into China. My men were... Fuck is this? Identify yourself. White House Chief of Staff Hayden Sinclair, General. How old are you, Chief of Staff Sinclair? I'm 33. Well, Mr. Sinclair, you obviously don't have any fucking idea what I'm talking about. But you're, what are you doing? Doing smoke? No, I'm sorry. And it's nothing personal. It's just Jesus Christ. Forty-seven of my men were killed in northern China, whatever the fuck, northern Laos, southern China. And uh, one, the one interesting thing, the Nick Cage touch, you know, the very Cage. And, and remember, this is the first film he does after he wins his Oscar. Yeah. He literally, he won his Oscar three months earlier, three for Leaving Las Vegas, the great Leaving Las Vegas. So now you're going to be the act, the un, unlikely action star in The Rock. And I remember uh, one of the things he, he uh, asked for in the screenplay, he didn't want the character to use any curse words. He thought that would be kind of a a neat thing to try mm-hmm. to do with this character. And, and, and it's true. It, it gives the character this kind of uh, innocence amongst all this yeah. uh, macho posturing. And that's fun. That's a fun contrast, especially against, you know, Connery doing a classic, you know, Connery's go-to, you know, big dick performance that he kind of yeah. does. But in all fairness, Nicholas Cage also asked if he could wear a pompadour and speak with a lisp. So I, I don't know that... Yeah. All of it was good. Right. <laughs> so, like, so you know, it's uh, you know, it's still fun. I still watch it when it comes on. I still have fun with it. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a reminder of what Michael Bay could have been, as opposed to what he has turned into, which is just you know, the. Yeah, I think I, I think Michael Bay is an auteur of a type, and there are a couple of things that he's done that I that I appreciate on their level. Uh, just because he makes movies that I generally don't like doesn't make him any less of a visionary. I, I think he he is. You know, you know a Michael Bay movie, and Michael Bay has yeah. begat a lot of filmmakers that try to walk in his vein. You know, uh, yeah. with setting up twenty cameras on every single setup. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I, mean, uh, I remember t- that Tony Scott was of the same kind of school, and I remember Redford saying. 
the hell are you doing with all these cameras? <laughs> when they did Spy Game together, they're like cameras and helicopters and all kinds of stuff. He's like, what the hell am I doing? I have to admit, I I, I kind ahead. of enjoyed uh, Pain and Gain, the film he made in between some of those Transformers films. I uh, it, I don't know. I guess I guess maybe I was in the right frame of mind, but that was the one diversion that he did between all the sequels and the uh, it was. I don't know. I, for some reason, I enjoyed that. That was kind of an anomaly in his career, I think. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and uh, his uh, his begat. Yes, he does have a vision. I will grant him that. Uh, it's mostly not a good vision. I don't like anymore. And he's begat a lot of bad filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And uh, but great Tony filmmakers Scott, have begat a lot of bad filmmakers as well. Yeah. yeah yes. True. And this is a case of a bad filmmaker begatting worse filmmakers. <laughs> and and uh, Tony Scott uh, was a great filmmaker, and yes, he did all the pyrotechnics, but he never lost track of the of the story. You know, be it you know, Unstoppable or uh, yeah, but uh, but and I I, I, I I actually like Tony Scott, but I remember I wrote a piece about Michael Bay when the one of the last Transformers he did came out. And when I watch a Michael Bay movie, I think of that Pauline Kael quote about Top Gun, a movie that's it's like a recruiting poster that's more interested in being a poster. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he can have all the flair he wants, but he's he's not he's not selling anything beyond the surface. Mm-hmm. He's selling the sizzle. That's it. There's nothing. Else. And I yeah, always yeah. thought it was hysterical. How he was interviewed at a certain point. He said, look, I'm not like Spielberg making Private Ryan trying to make some serious message movie. And then the next movie he tries to do is Pearl Harbor, which uh, Michael Bay <laughs> handling Pearl Harbor is almost, I mean, it's offensive, you know. Yeah. Well, and uh, there's, yeah. The, there's that great there's that great book, The Oral History of the First Ten Years of MTV. I won my MTV. And there's a chapter in there about propaganda films, basically about contrasting Fincher and Bay, who were both at that uh, propaganda films and made the music videos. And there's no bones, but they don't interview either one. They interview the guys who were there and remember them there. And basically, Fincher uh, pretty much found Michael Bay offensive because uh, he, you know, he, you know, he went he was in it for the money and he had all this talent, but he didn't do anything. And Bay, and according to the guys, yeah, Michael Bay just followed Fincher around and just wanted to, you know soak him up and Fincher was just disgusted by him. Huh. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, none of that I kind of wonder what none that... of Fincher rubbed off, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, this is the probably the most interesting movie of the summer, just in terms of the conversations it inspired and the, the hardcore fandom around it and the hardcore what the hell were they thinking. And that's the cable guy. And I think a lot of it, uh, you know... If Jim Carrey did this movie for five million dollars instead of twenty, <laughs> I have a feeling mm-hmm. like the conversation would be a, a, a little lower pitched around this movie. But it was somehow offensive that he goes out and he makes this really dark movie. No, you're supposed to be the guy that that cheerfully enters every room and all this kind of crap. You don't want to engage in this. But it's a it was a, a ballsy choice for him, I think. And I'm wondering. Uh, Adam, we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Aaron. Did you uh, do you like it? Did you like it from the beginning? If you did like it, 
I thought it was a mixed bag. Um, I thought that it was uh, some of the, the the little inside jokes were clever in a mainstream film. Uh, the fact that he used, uh, you know, he keeps on changing his, his name, keeps changing. He uses all these aliases and he uses names of uh, sitcom stars, uh, sitcom characters from the from the 60s, like Darren Stevens and things of that nature. I, I thought those little touches were nice and kind of subversive and funny, but. Overall, it just, uh, it didn't quite, it wasn't, I don't know, it just, it just felt like it was a bit of a misfire, and I can't recall exactly, uh, or pinpoint exactly why I felt like that, but I just felt like it's, it's, uh, it, it aimed for targets that it didn't quite, uh, successfully, uh, but hit. At least, but at least it aimed, you know, a summer, a it big did, summer comedy starring the superstar Jim Carrey, at least it aimed for something different. It did. And, and there were, I, and there I were moments, hate. there were moments like, I didn't laugh at all in the movie, except for one part, and it's a very obvious joke. But <laughs> it's when it's when the cable guy is killed, and so all the like uh, electricity goes out, or all the TV signals go out around town, and some guy looks over his night table and sees a book like he's never seen one before, and he's like, "Huh?" and he picks up the book <laughs> and starts to read. <laughs> that was good. Yes. Okay, Aaron. Uh, I was a I was a I was a fan from the beginning. Um, I didn't I didn't really pay attention to the to the hoopla over the salary because other actors got paid twenty million and you know uh, whatever. Uh, what what the problem with the cable guy at the time and now no one seems to be bothered by this is that it was kind of this uh, this thing of uh, of uh, misguided expectations because obviously he's coming off of you know. Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, and um, Batman Forever, and Ace Ventura 2. So he's obviously has this type of a uh, comedy. But the, what what you know what was funny, and it and it's there from the first Ace Ventura, where people weren't really paying attention, is that there's this dark undercurrent to Kim Carrey's humor, almost from the beginning, uh, and he hadn't really been allowed to like really do the dark comedy but it was always there and the cable guy is the movie that finally unleashes that this is so if you were paying attention to Jim Carrey's humor from the beginning this was the movie this was the the fruition of what you had been suspecting all along and it was kind of exciting to see it uh but if you weren't paying attention you were kind of taken taken aback by it uh, the other thing to keep in mind see this is where also we get into Ben Stiller Ben Stiller directed this and Ben Stiller is an interesting figure in that uh, Ben Stiller is great when he is uh, being off-putting and when he is being kind of smug and being kind of uh, confrontational. You know, when Ben Stiller tries to be sincere, like in There's Something About Mary, he, he doesn't do sincerity well because there's something very kind of uh, cloying about when he does sincerity. But, you know, if you look at something like Your Friends and Neighbors – or uh, uh, the one with the kid where he has a son, he's trying to get him into college, uh, or even in Meet the Parents. Uh, you know, he he uh, you know he, he tries to be sincere, but he's actually very arrogant and self-absorbed. And I think that and that and I think he's best as in Greenberg, another great example. And I think in his his best directing jobs, Cable Guy the TV series he did for Showtime, he understands that type of personality. Cable Guy, actually, it has a lot in common with King of Comedy, 
uh, which is also a film about, you know, uh, obsessive characters and is very off-putting and took a lot of years for people to realize how funny that was, but just how dark and, you know, just, uh, you know, not very uh, inviting that it was. And I, and Cable Guy has a lot of big laughs for me. I mean, that the, the, the party that they have and he, the karaoke that he does is, is uh, hilarious. And then the, uh, the password sequence is hilarious and the take on Midnight Express. And frankly, and, and the trick to the Cable Guy is that Matthew Broderick kind of brings it all upon himself because he's just as smug. He's a very smug, arrogant character. So he kind of brings it all upon himself. So that's that's the key with the cable guys. So I, I thought it was a terrific movie. Okay. Maul Flanders. Is this the um, uh, Robin, Robin Wright? Wright? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Not very good. I mean, it's it's you know it's it's a fa- it's a you know obviously a famous book and Robin Wright you know trying to like you know have a star vehicle but you know it's it's Merchant Ivory without Merchant Ivory and I mean Morgan Freeman's actually good. That's a unique piece. Of, that's a out of the box piece of casting, but it's just it's just kind of one of these period character studies by paint by numbers. Mm-hmm. Not very good. And then on that same day, Bernardo Bertolucci stealing beauty, Liv Tyler being seduced by a much older by Jeremy Irons or something. I I remember that it was uh, kind of playfully billed as the last tango in Tuscany or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she's seduced by Jeremy. Um, she does sleep with someone, but Jeremy Irons is dying, and so they have this bond over right. that, and she con- confides in him to all her escapades, and as he's dying, he's, you know, touched by this young woman and so forth. And um, it's not very good. You know, Bertolucci had a couple of bad movies here, this, and then three years later he had Besieged, and it wouldn't be until '04 when he finally had his triumphant return to this kind of risky, dangerous, uh, youthful sexuality territory with uh, the Dreamers, the MC-17 movie that he did. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it, it did put Liv Tyler kind of on the, the cover girl map, as it were, uh, as a, someone to watch. Yeah. Like she was more than just a, a, a video vixen, as it were. June 24th. Eraser, you've been erased. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Erasing. James Caan. Yep. Let's let's do a poll here. Who's beefier, Arnold or uh, James Caan in this movie? Who's beefier? Beefier. Yeah. Wow. Okay. These guys, these guys both look pretty. Coburn's in it too. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Damn, that's a lot uh, of testosterone. I, yeah, it is. Directed yeah. by Chuck uh, Russell. Uh, Chuck Russell, his follow-up to The Mask. Uh, Chuck Russell, he was a good, he was a good action filmmaker. I, 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 I thought he would do some. And this movie was a hit. It made a hundred million dollars. Uh, thought it would be more. I thought we'd get more from Chuck Russell. Vanessa Williams is good. This is a good action. This is a, this is a good Schwarzenegger action movie. Uh, has one astonishing set piece involving uh, Schwarzenegger escaping in an airplane. Uh, in mid midair, you know, obviously, and uh, the way he uh, confronts that airplane in midair, it's just kind of one of those great crowd pleasing sequences. And everyone, I don't, do y'all remember the guns, those rail guns? 
with aluminum bullets mm. uh, mm-hmm. that go mm-hmm. faster yeah. than the speed of speed of light. The guns were awesome. Uh, so yeah, uh, erasers. Uh, it's disposable fun. It's uh, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, be, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's like uh, it's like Commando. It's like, it's like a Commando with is, better production value. Is Coburn uh, his boss? Is he like the head of the CIA or something? Or I think I think he's the head head of CIA because his immediate superior is a uh, James Khan who betrays him. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and then and it's you know you get the you get the old school tough guys uh, because uh, and then Cameron uh, used uh, Charlton Heston for the head of the CIA in True Lies, didn't he? Yep, yeah, that's right. These, these guys have a certain vision as to what that position represents: Coburn mm-hmm. and Heston, and you know. I'm waiting for the movie where we get Meryl Streep. The head of the CIA. Has that not <laughs> happened yet? <laughs> no. Well, uh, what is it? Well, in the Mission Impossible movies, what is it? It's like Angela Bassett's the head of the, the right. IMF force. So we're we're almost there. Getting closer. Uh, okay. Also on that day, Disney's animated The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Dom name. Name. Uh, I love it. What is? Which is? Is this? Who did the score for this one? Um, or the hit song, or was there a hit song? There were no hit songs, but it was it was a little more adult in that the songs were a little more. It was kind of like an operetta in that the songs were kind of uh, woven into the dialogue. So it's not like they had like, I mean, they had obviously musical set pieces, but they weren't like, uh, you know, it wasn't like you know Under the Sea and Little Mermaid. They were a little more serious. Um, yeah. I love Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's one of the best drawn films of that era, that Renaissance era. Uh, this is on par with Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Um, it's funny. I know a lot of people at the time they they kind of you know complain about. Well, they they really kind of you know because they they quote unquote sanitize or streamline the book, and um, which is a weird complaint because they do that with all the adaptations they do, and I thought they did a good job here of keeping the spirit of the book involving discrimination and class uh repression suppression um but also uh you know but making it obviously for uh, family entertainment uh the villain the 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 king the lord uh is one of the great villains in the of uh, in Disney history uh Tom Hulse is just incredible as the voice of uh, Quasimodo, and the camera just kind of swoops around in and out of out of uh, the cathedrals. It's just it's, uh, it's a great. I saw that in theaters. It's it's, uh, it's one of the best of the of like of that '90s Disney era of uh, of uh, animated films. It, and it made a hundred million dollars, but it was like one of the quietest hundred million dollar grossing Disney movies of yeah, all time. It made a lot worldwide. Uh, it did. So no, that's a that's a that's a great great Disney film. John Sales Lone Star. Adam, why don't you take this first? I'll, then I'll do it. I remember liking it. I mean, I'm a, generally a fan of John Sales, um, and I know this is Matthew McConaughey, and it was um, you know at the when he was uh, 
first becoming a thing. Uh, you know, his career was on the rise, and uh, can't these uh, you know well-crafted character studies and. Um, well, Christofferson was a, a, a performance of some praise, right? In, yes. in this movie, I mean that it, it felt like a real uh, emergence. Oh God, he's still around. Christofferson, he's great in this movie. He's great for this movie. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a good point. It was probably you know the if not one of uh, one of the if not the uh, critically acclaimed movies of the year, and it's it's one of the by the mainstream. I think it's one of the most appreciated of sales films. Yeah, probably uh, one of the biggest grossing ones, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, that and um, Passion Fish, I think, are his top grossing films. Uh, yeah, I remember Lone Star. Obviously, it was big down here in Texas, San Antonio. Played here a long time, and I remember at our art house, I saw. I thought I think it's true. It, he got his Oscar nomination finally for best original screenplay. It's a great screenplay. Um, yeah, McConaughey got you know. When when Time to Kill came out, people went back to this. So like, oh, he's in that. Uh, I mean, the one who really emerges in this film after like a decade in indie films and plays is Chris Cooper, who has the lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yep. he's, he's just he's incredible in the movie. Um, amazingly enough, as much praise it is, and it is a great film, made my top ten list that year. Um, this is this is like top five sales for me. This is not I don't this is not even his best film. Uh, I'm still, uh, I still think Baby It's You and City of Hope are his his two greatest films. And uh, it's funny, City of Hope uh, has a lot in common with Lone Star, where it's this sprawl of like, you know, City of Hope has like three dozen characters and follows them throughout this city. And Lone Star is similar in that it has a, I think it has a dozen characters, maybe a dozen and a half characters, and follows them through this uh Texas border town and has all these storylines and he keeps track of them beautifully. Um, so yeah, uh, Lone Star. Lone I like Star's I like sales. Event. I like sales a lot. I like sales oh, pers- yeah. personally. Aaron, you interviewed sales, right? I interviewed yeah. I interviewed him for uh, Baby It's You when that finally came out on DVD. And um, we should also mention that this contains a great leading female performance by the late great Elizabeth Pena. I was going to mention that. Yeah, she died. Yeah. Yeah, she did. Uh, probably about five years ago or something. Oh shit! Couple, yeah, a couple years. Yeah. Just woke up. Uh, from a long nap. Uh, so I guess I missed her death. Uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah, I like John Sales. I've interviewed him a couple of times. And I remember the first com- first part of the first conversation we ever had. I don't know how we got into it, but uh, he came from the stage. He he did some acting on the stage, and he played Tom in Glass Menagerie, and we just kind of talked about that for a few minutes. Uh, he's one of the great resourceful independent filmmakers that, uh, that rides that line. I mean, he, he, he has such, uh, uh, autonomy when it comes to his own work, but, and yet he can work on big budget studio movies, doctoring, knowing exactly what those things need. He's got credits. We, we don't know. They haven't been announced, but he's worked on a lot of the big dumb, Well, it's, amazing. I mean, he, it's amazing how much uh, I mean Spielberg or Ron Howard trust him immensely. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, he uh, he pretty much shaped the screenplay for Apollo 13 into uh, to what it is. Yeah. Uh, from, what I, from what I understand. June 28th, the big comedy of the year. 
the nutty professor Eddie Murphy. Yes. Uh, one of the great uh, miscarriages of the award season of that year uh-huh. was Eddie Murphy not getting an Oscar nomination for his work in the first Nutty Professor movie. Uh, what he what he accomplished in that movie is just it's still pretty uh, incredible. Um, and it's every bit as a burlesque as any Jerry Lewis comedy. And uh, it's just, I mean, you, know, uh, you can say what you want about Eddie Murphy's later movies and how they kind of fell off the table. Uh, but this was, you know, the comeback movie we were waiting for. He hadn't had a good movie in uh, four or five years. Uh, but this was the one we were all waiting for, and it delivered. It was that rare thing where the 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 the, the expectations were met, and uh, it's just it's just and the effects were funny. They were kept in check, and uh, it's just terrific. And a great uh, the first inkling, if you really pay attention, of the future genius Dave, Dave of uh, Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Yes. You know, I think the movie. I mean, obviously, it has the, its outrageous moments and, and the comedy's on point, but uh, I, I think it worked and it grabbed people because it, it, of its empathy, because of its humanity. Like it, it yeah. didn't sacrifice that. And you could, you could um, easily imagine an Eddie Murphy version of the Nutty Professor that did sacrifice that. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the audience was just loud laughter throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. And Jerry, oh, yeah. Lewis, Jerry Lewis made a ton of bank on it, so he was happy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, great movie. And, and the great contributions of Rick Baker. Those makeups are pretty incredible. Granny is uh, just one of those great creations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, no, not a professor. Uh, did it win best? I, I don't remember who won best makeup. I I like to think it did, but I, I can't remember. No, I, um, they might have reserved that for Norbit. <laughs> that did win the Oscar, didn't it? Norbit? Did it really? Norbit for makeup? No, it did, it did not win Best Makeup. Norbit. Best, oh, nominated. Okay. All right. Shit. Well, it's close. Well, I was pulling for it. Okay. <laughs> the final release in June. Oh, man, this was much talked about. We talked about the Jim Carrey paycheck. The big story of striptease was the big Demi Moore paycheck, which was yeah. I think fifteen or twelve or fifteen million dollars. They made a big, yeah. big to do out of that, and you got the striptease, which I could, uh, uh, you know, Carl Hayson, um, you know, a, kind of a, a Southern fried, everything's a little elevated, you know. I could imagine a version of this that. Uh, that maybe worked. That was a little more biting and observational, but uh, it didn't quite do it. <laughs> for no, me. I agree. And I was so excited about uh, Burt Reynolds in this thing, and uh, you know, it's a lot better than a lot of things that Burt Reynolds did before or after. But uh, he, it didn't give him a chance to shine as much as I wanted it to. Yeah. And Burt Reynolds, he's he's clearly in on the joke, and he's yes, he's kind of chan- he's channeling um, Charles Durning, basically his buddy, in his kind of like best little whorehouse right. in Texas kind of vibe. Yeah, that scene where so Charles Durning on... covered himself in Vaseline. That uh, I'll yeah. never forget that. It haunt me the rest of my and, days. 
<laughs> and, and Carl Hyacinth, you know, he writes these books, these comic, you know, these comic uh, character books, and set in Florida. And um, and Andrew Bergman is usually uh, really good at this kind of a character-based humor. You know, a classic film is you know the, the Freshman. It's a good example. It's being a little uh, this kind of light, absurdist humor. The Freshman's a great comedy. It's a classic. And even Honeymoon in Vegas. So you would think, you know, Andrew Bergman dealing with this topic and a Carl Hyacinth source material, he might, you know, he'd be, it'd be a perfect match, but uh, something went wrong. And and I think in the case here is that uh, Demi Moore, you know, one of the things we've been talking about is actors not knowing what movie they're in. I don't think she realized she was in a light comedy. And so she's playing this. But like, even... Yeah, I I get what you're saying, but and plus there was just the 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 press about her nudity, playing a stripper, and then making so much money, and so there was so so much stuff that you were inundated with before you even walked in the theater. But no matter who was the lead in this movie, I can't imagine any part of it that would be considered funny. The guy that steals wheelchairs, like, is that a gag? Is that an effective gag? <laughs> yeah. All right. You know, and, and Demi Moore, she was on this streak for a couple of years at this time where she was doing these uh, women empowerment kind of movies, you know, or at least what she thought were, you know, the juror in and, and this film and so forth. And they were just kind of being, they were duds at the box office. The irony is that the one that finally clicks uh, is G.I. Jane, where, which is directed by one of the most macho directors you can come around, you know, of all you know, you know, around Ridley Scott, uh, who, uh, surprisingly reveals, has revealed that he has a very, uh, he's, he's able to get on the fem- feminist wavelength with Delman Louise and a movie like G.I. Jane's probably the best, uh, of these films that she did at this era, but, you know, striptease just didn't, uh, didn't cut it. Does anyone remember the, um, the Demi Moore, Barbara Walters interview? Yes. Uh, that she did around this time. And, um, uh, we have that in that. She tries uh, to teach her how to yep. pole dance. Yeah, how to well, how to do some <laughs> sexy dancing. It's an indelible image that I, 25 years later, I've not been able to get out of my mind of Barbara Walters wiggling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's 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 the true that's the truly offensive uh, version of the view because that's a view I don't want to see. You don't want to see Barbara Walters wiggling. Hey, she was a she was a Playboy bunny girl, so she she hold her own. Barbara Walters yep. was really. Yeah, before uh, she before she. Wait a minute! A wait a minute! You're telling me Barbara Walters was a Playboy bunny and Elizabeth Pena is dead? Like what's happening in the show? <laughs> Barbara, Walters, Barbara Walters worked in the Playboy nightclub as a bunny girl, you know, the waitress server, and uh, wow. she one time she even demonstrated. Yeah, we, this is how you're the supposed to. Yeah. Yeah, the bunny. Yeah, she, she still remembers. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, we started with Andy Warhol. We're ending with Barbara Walters. Uh, yes. We, we will be back next episode covering the films released during the months of July and August during the summer of 96. And uh, that show will kick off with the uh, the biggest worldwide success of the year. So something to look forward to. Kazam! Hmm. Truly a phenomenon. Yeah. Kazam! Kazam. <laughs> Cause yeah, yes. that's he gave it away, dude. <laughs> <laughs>